Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. When things get tiny, they get weird. And that's even more true at the quantum level. But that's entirely what we're counting on when we're talking about quantum computing. The unique properties available at this scale open up all new possibilities in communication, large-scale modeling and prediction, encryption, and more. To better understand this space and its potential, we spoke with William Hurley, better known as Whirly. Whirly is the founder and CEO of Strangeworks, a quantum computing startup that makes this power easily accessible and available to all. He is an Eisenhower Fellow, Innovator in Residence for the Legatum Center for Development and Entrepreneurship at the Sloan School of Management at MIT, a senior member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, and the chairman of the Quantum Computing Standards Workgroup at IEEE the first ambassador to CERN and Society, and a regular contributor to TechCrunch on the topic of quantum computing. He's also the co-author of Quantum Computing for Babies. Prior to starting Strangeworks, he was a managing director at Goldman Sachs. He came to Goldman Sachs via the acquisition of his startup Honest Dollar. And prior to Honest Dollar, he founded Chaotic Moon Studios, which was later acquired by Accenture. Worley, welcome to Austin Next. Thank you for having me. Okay, I've got to ask. I, I do have a copy of your book, Quantum for Babies. My grandson now has it. He's three. Okay. Perfect for him. But what is quantum computing? That is a great question. What is the nature of the universe? <laughs> and what you, is truth? Yes. And, and, but, the, but, but the reality is, is that, uh, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to look at it. So I'm going to give you three, as succinct as I can, ways that I like to look at it. One, the simplest and shortest way is, we're exiting what we in the quantum world called the classical computing kind of dominance era, right? So step away from von Neumann architectures, use a new crazy alien-like technologies. It's awesome. So it's the next compute kind of thing. Second, we split the atom and we created a weapon of horrible mass destruction, uh, incredibly powerful. And then we split the atom and we made nuclear power plants, right? We use atomic energy rather to use nuclear power plants. And, you know, that's kind of cool, double sword. Uh, now we're effectively doing that, not splitting an atom, but like at MIT, they take a salt atom, blow it up, pull an electron off, and they uh, freeze it down almost absolute zero, and they, they start computing on it. So we're starting to do that for computing. And I think quantum computing will have as much of an effect on that, you know, if you look at the effects of it on the world in healthcare, in pharmaceuticals, in uh, material sciences, automation, industrial stuff, AI, it will touch all of these things. The last way that I like to think about it, and I think it is the absolute you know, thing that I'm probably known for, and so everybody listening who's listened to other interviews has heard this a million times, is 2023 is 1963. 
1963, you had the benefit of in 1958-59, Jack Kilby invented a thing called the integrated circuit. Before that, you brought circuits one at a time. And that kind of started the launch to the equipment we're recording on today and the iPhones that we've silenced for the recording and all of these great things we have up to the greatest supercomputer in the world. And so by 63, that had been integrated enough that kind of you saw this path going forward, right? And for me, I think 2023 is 1963. I think the last five years I've seen similar developments to what you would have seen had you been alive and, and working back in that era. And I've seen the increase in funding. I've seen the increase in talent, the increase in university education programs. When we started this company, IBM had 17 qubits. Last year, they hit 433. This year, they'll hit somewhere between 11 and 1200. Okay, that's in five years. Uh, there were four university programs for masters uh, in quantum information science. There's now over 50. There were three primary technologies in quantum. There's now nine. There were 15 startups, maybe that mattered. There's 250 plus that have, you know, people and funding of some nature that, you know, is it any less fair to call a two-person startup with a million in funding a, a startup more than we are or whatever? It's like, I don't think it is, right? That's what we all are. We're startups. And you saw funding just go unbelievably huge. There was $20 billion invested in quantum in its history when I stepped on stage at South by. And right now, five years later, there's been an additional $10 billion invested. And now you have things like the uh, Endless Frontiers Act and all of these other things. And you're talking about tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars that will start flowing globally into this area. So, you know, what is quantum computing? Quantum computing is the future of, you know, humanity. It is the computational ability that we need to build other forms of computing because it won't just be about quantum computing or classical. They'll work together. They're not going to replace each other. They'll be amorphic, neuromorphic, DNA-based things, all these new things. This is the moment in time, the point in history where we step over that chasm to what is going to be the next generation of computers. Okay, so I want to follow up with that because... When I was a kid, I'm going to talk about And that's what it is, because you didn't ask how it worked. That's why I didn't get in there. No. So, you know, I'm very specific on your questions. <laughs> I could not tell you how it worked. The toys I worked with when I was, you know, in 1968, my toy was an IBM 360 163 that ran UCLA Medical Center. And we had the ability to go and run whatever we wanted to on it. And, you know, you look at these last 50 some odd years and you see it going from this thing that took the size of probably this building that we're sitting in right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a support staff. <laughs> and, and, and a support staff that would take another building to, you know, Moore's Law and, you know, reducing and reducing and reducing down to something now the size of your iPhone with much yeah. more, you know, how fast will quantum mature? You know, you, you talked about how much has happened in five years with regard to, the amount of money, the amount of companies, the amount of, of PhD and, and master's programs, how fast can we expect this to mature? The million-dollar question, okay? And, and I can tell you the answer I tell customers all over the world, that I tell students when I was in Vegas, the IEEE Rising Stars thing a couple weeks ago, which is we don't know, and that's why you need to be doing it today because – Think about what I said a few moments ago about IBM starting at 17, getting 430 in five years. Now go back to 1963 and go, where did we get in five years? We get, as technology has progressed, we have the advantage of all the technology created 
as an outcome of that event, right, which lets us go faster. And we're building machines that are quantum mechanical in nature that are built using nature. So doing things like digital twins of nature and all are much faster. So this is going to unlock everything. And we're waiting on a few things. People will tell you we're waiting on quantum advantage, the point at where a quantum computer can demonstrably do something that a classical computer absolutely cannot. I think there's a couple of examples of the, the beginnings of that that have already popped up about um, December of, of not last year, but the year before. John Preskill's team published a paper on, uh, they did 1,300 experiments using 40 um, superconducting qubits and proved that they could have an advantage against classical computers and machine learning. Okay, so there's little things like that. But what everybody wants, and this is my complaint about quantum, and this year you will hear me complain about this a lot, users are acting like investors. What's an investor want? Let's be honest. The investor wants you to come with a great business idea and you boil out all the risk and there's almost no risk and then they'll give you some money and they'll take 40% of the company or whatever, right? I mean, there's a reality. The users want like the magical alien-like technology and it just works, shows up someday, so like let me know when it does. And this is such a, you know, ass backwards way to look at it. I mean, think of it from this perspective. What was your first computer? The IBM 360-163. Very first, nothing else. Why did you use it? Oh, because I was a math geek at 12 years old. But who cares? I mean, it was it's useless compared to the computers of today and where computers got to. It was fun. But but that's my point. It's like my first computer was a uh, Ebsen, uh, and I had a Commodore. I didn't not I had a Mac uh, SE at one point. I didn't, and, and, it, and it was horrible compared to the Mac I have now on my desk, right? But like, I did not use it. And what people are effectively doing is like, oh, that's great. We'll wait till it's fully matured and everybody has it. It's like, you can't afford to do that for any way. It's very frustrating. Quantum advantage, that'll be the thing the market wants. Quantum acceptance, it's just a term nobody uses. <laughs> just trademark that one. And quantum value, which is something we're going to introduce at South By in 2023, this is, I think, is what's a realistic viewpoint. These machines will change computing more by 2030 than it has changed in its entire history. And it's an extremely fascinating, wondrous, dangerous, exhilarating time to, to be alive and, and be working in it. Um, and I personally think 2023 is the year where you will see the uptick in quantum. I believe this because you had the industrial revolution. Why? Because you had a depression. Then you had the industry stuff come in, right? You had the information revolution. What happened? We had a bunch of financial problems in the 70s, right? Anybody remember those? And then what happened? And we had the information. Usually you tend to see historically, right? If you read the fourth turning or any of these things, you kind of see these things that happen. Like, okay, there's a downturn, but there's a new thing. And then people believe in the new thing. And it goes up. I believe quantum is what takes us to the next kind of level, but I also believe it's what gets us out of quantum and AI, the combination, gets us out of some of the, the turmoil we're in now, you know, financially-wise, uh, efficiency-wise, et cetera, et cetera, um, because it gives chance people a chance to enter the future. The question is, is will it be evenly distributed? Or will it be like these units? And that's part of what our mission is. You know, when we launched, we said humanizing quantum. The idea is to get into as many hands as possible. You can't convince me that a high school student or a student at a minority college or somebody in a foreign country or whatever uh, isn't just as capable as some student at Harvard or Yale or wherever of coming up with an idea to 
do better drug discovery or to address a cancer or to have a new material science or whatever. I mean, we see these things all the time, right? You know, I don't know if you've seen this uh, guy uh, that I've been talking to recently um, who's building, and I don't know where he's at on this, so I don't want to, but he, he, it's pretty public, I'm pretty sure, but he's building uh, fab and he built it in his garage and made a chip. No clean room, no nothing. Okay. And he's out raising money right now and he's going to build an incredible uh, fab. And everybody's like, oh, you got to have a bunny suit. And you gotta have a... You didn't back then in the day. Those are all more modern inventions. Like people that like, do you think Jack Kilby had a bunny suit on when he was inventing the integrated circuit? No, he did not. Right? He they didn't did even know what it was. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I think distributing this technology even – uh, or as widely as possible is going to be great. And obviously there's national security concerns and this and that and whatever. But when is it coming? Sometime between right now in this moment and tomorrow and some tomorrow in the future. Here's – that's the wrong question. The question is how do I prepare for it coming? Because it's going to come out of nowhere. One day some physicist somewhere will have some Nobel-level work and they will say, I have just done this thing. And at that moment, everybody will want a quantum computer and they'll need one and all of those things. It's literally, there's going to be some watershed moment. I think that happens in the next 24 months. I personally am betting that it's happening in the next 12 and could be easily proved wrong. Yeah, but that's my, that's my working assumption. I want to walk through it technically for a little bit and how Let's it actually it. works. So that's a different question. So how does it work? Which I'm happy to answer. Right. And so <laughs> I want to walk through a bit of a use case, right? So one of the big things that I see the role of quantum, right, is and correct me if I'm wrong, this is low in the stack in terms of, as we think the tech stack, as a big innovator accelerator, right? You talk about all these different things that will be done. One of the big, obviously, you know, my background is a lot in life science and healthcare. And I've heard a lot of, okay, this is going to really accelerate, you know, de novo drug design. There's a lot of yeah. good things we can do with that. So walk me through kind of how it works and why it would be that, like, drug design is a good use case for this exactly. So just... And we'll come to this at the end of the, the talk, but, you know, not a fan of that approach, which is the approach industry has taken, but we'll get to that later. But let's talk about how we make a quantum computer, how it works, and why it's applicable in that use case. And we'll, we'll just say, you know, how do we make a quantum computer? Well, you take an electron, you take something that has spin, you pull it off. And you got to think of the history, 1927, Fifth Solvay Conference, Einstein, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, everybody get together. Quantum mechanics come into being. Einstein and Bohr fight about, you know, super uh, entanglement, rather. Uh, you know, all of this very well-known, uh, wonderful PBS special last year on Einstein's, like, quantum question or problem or whatever. It's fantastic. The, the God doesn't throw dice thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super good. But they did such a great job on it. So how do we make them? Well, we're effectively taking an electron and in an ion trap, you know, or some atomic particle, and in these different areas, an ion trap, you're trapping it with lasers, okay, and you're using a combination of microwaves and everything, you know, pulse modulations and stuff to control them. Uh, in a superconducting, we're cooling them down, colder in space, same kind of an annealer, but it works from a different perspective of physics. You've got things like what Mick Ferreira is doing at AeroQ with uh, helium electrons. You've got all these different ways. But at the base level... Think of a coin, and I put it on the desk in front of us, heads up, it's a one, I flip it over, it's a zero. Take the same coin and flip it in the air when it's the apex of that spin, it's not in a one or a zero, or you'll hear people say everything in between, it's in a quantum superposition of every probability of one or zero that there could be across all known universes, however extravagant you want to make that. Because let's face it, if anybody tells you that they know about quantum computing, I can guarantee they do not. And that is not to harp off a of Feynman or whatever. It's just now I've met so many people. Like, there is so much confusing stuff. We had a two-hour call with 16 
uh, physicists this morning, and I don't think anybody agreed on anything. <laughs> so, so you know, work to be done on uh, nomenclature, standards, things like that. But um, so we can have different types of quantum computers. We build them by uh, effectively manipulating these atomic particles, which you can think of like a soccer ball. And if it's pointed straight up, it's a one. It's pointed straight down, it's a zero. You can rotate that on X, Y, and Z axis or an H axis, okay, which is a combination of X, Y, or Y, Z, or whatever. So that's, you know, we build them out of atomic particles by cooling them or traveling with lasers or whatever. It works by manipulating it around. We basically build circuit gates, okay, which right now look like sheets of music that show how we reduce it all down to a one or a zero. Because when I talked about that coin flipping in the air, we don't know what that probability is going to be, what outcome is going to happen until we stop it like a coin toss and measure it. And when we collapse that state, we know it's a heads or a tails, right? So that, that's, you know, super high level. Well, I'm going to pause for a minute. With the, okay, you have the superposition, you collapse it down. Why is this any different than the classic? I'm, I'm missing the moment of where, where the power of the quantum comes into this, right? Great question. So I was going to add that on at the tail end. Oh, okay. I'm going to move it to the front. Great question. So we have four bits. We have 16 outcomes. And we can be in any one of those outcomes at any moment in time. And if we add a bit, we have five bits. We have 25. We can be in one of those at any time. If we have four qubits, we still have the same 16 outcomes. But we can be in all 16 outcomes at the same moment in time. And if we go to five qubits, we don't have 25. We have two to the n, the number of bits. And the power curve goes exponentially. That is why it's so valuable. So let's take something like the traveling salesperson, which is, say, again, I need a new 2023 example. I think five years, we can kill this one. It's Michelle Simmons' example. Uh, bluntly, I think she gave a great speech about it, you know, about quantum in general. And she gave a bunch of examples. But one of the examples she gave, I thought was amazing, and I used when we launched the company, was traveling salesperson problem, which some people are reasoning, is it quantum problem or not or whatever. Who cares? Her example is, we want to go to 14 cities, the three of us in the most optimized path. I get on my laptop, I write a program to do it, it takes it a few thousand seconds. We go from 14 cities to 22, a difference of only eight. That same laptop takes thousands of years, two, three, four, five thousand years. We go to 28 cities and it takes longer than the time of the known universe. So there are what are called intractable problems in drug discovery and material science and logistics everywhere that it's not that a classical computer can't do it. That's one of the big myths. It's that it would take a supercomputer millions of years for the evaluation time to complete to give you an answer, okay? So that's that ability to be in all those positions at the same time, the ability to I add a qubit and the just power curve. These are why, these are basic principles of why it's done. Things like entanglement, teleportation, and superposition, which are kind of the three physics tenets, if you will, of quantum computing. They're just a completely different way of thinking of a, 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 a computing system as a physical thing, right? Does that answer your question? That's a good explanation. So back to your drug discovery. So why is it valuable? It's valuable in a couple areas. You can use it to reduce the problem space and better spend R&D dollars. Obviously, you guys probably drink caffeine today. Caffeine molecule, if you were to do a digital twin of that, let's use it as an example. A friend of mine, Bob Suter, had an awesome talk as I once. He was like, look, it would take as much memory as the size of the planet to digital twin that. But a quantum computer could do it in 160 qubits. And the reason he said that was because a qubit is using quantum mechanics. Jerry Chow at IBM says also, and Jay Gambetta, too, awesome to say a lot of similar things. We're using quantum mechanics to duplicate quantum mechanics, so you could do it in 160 qubits. So IBM already is a 433 qubit machine. 
So think of the drug discovery, you know, molecular science where peptide designs, looking for molecular bonds, all this that you could do if you could actually digitally twin them for testing or simulating. Simulating the real world using essentially the real world. Just as one example. Right. Which to me, I use that. There's a lot of ways I think these machines are great, but I use that because that is a very... You can tell like what's going to happen. You're going to use that work and then you're taking it in a wet lab at your pharma company, right? You know, you're talking about your background. So it's like that's a huge potential boon for, for pharma R&D. But it's, uh, it's the most amazing thing that everybody thinks hasn't happening, happened yet because everybody's looking for a finish line. And one, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Sure. This is 20, 30 years, 50 years. We'll see quantum technologies go into networking and communications and there'll be quantum internet and all of these things. But the computing part isn't 50 years away. It's not 20 years away. It's not 10 years away. We have customers here at StrangeWorks that pay us that do really good work where they are seeing you know, uh, benefit. Again, what we call quantum value. I don't want to say advantage or mix up any terms. Um, and they're doing that today. They're doing that in drug discovery. Uh, they're doing that with molecular science and material design. Uh, they're doing that in finance. They're doing that in energy. You know, we have those customers. So we are like, is it commercial? When will it be commercial? It's like, I don't know. We're charging people for it. That sounds sounds fairly commercial sounds to me. Sounds commercial right now. It'd be the definition of commercial. Someone's paying for it and getting yeah. value, right? And they I mean, keep think, coming back more. And then they pay, pay you again, and you're like, oh, it works, right? Like, you know, they, you don't have attrition, and you're like, oh, we have a thing. So, yeah, so I think it's commercial now. But, but it's not a trillion-dollar market or multi-billion-dollar market. It's a maybe a hundred-million-dollar market in reality uh, that will grow – to be one of the most dominant things in the future is in quantum. I always start my presentations with quantum computing, not artificial intelligence, is the space race of our generation. Because if you believe in artificial intelligence, and I love AI, everybody has this idea that I'm some sort of AI hater. I'm not an AI hater, I just, we don't have AI. Okay, what OpenAI is doing, the stable diffusion, some of these, we're starting it there. Really cool work, I'm a super big fan of, of a lot of those companies. But until then, We've done really great automation, right? There's no intelligence to it, right? There's like these repeated patterns and stuff, and that's why I'm critical. And Doug Winnett, who's been a friend and mentor for a while now, started Psych in 1984 uh, to build an inference engine because he said an AI was impossible. And, um, you know, it's like I learned so much from him back in the early 2000s on, you know, well, they're just moving the goalposts, right? Like now it's a super intelligence. Or some other variant of, you know, so so we keep moving the, the goal. So when I say quantum, not AI, is the is the space race of a generation, I say it because if you believe in artificial intelligence, you believe nature is quantum mechanical, and you believe that your brain is from nature and is quantum mechanical, which neuroscientists are definitely split on, okay? But if your brain is quantum mechanical, okay, then you would need a quantum computer to build a version of that brain, right? So... I think you're going to see between now and the end of the decade a really good chance of a lot of things that people think is magic and, you know, sci-fi and everything start to happen. I mean, you've seen the reaction to chat GTP. Well, I, I think that's a great point because – and it was funny because you, 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 you jumped ahead in terms of the thoughts. I, I loved – I was at, you know, the um, – the quantum summit earlier when I saw you actually say that quote and I had it written down of like, that's a really provocative statement, especially good in the, the we all see with Dolly and ChatGPT. And what is fascinating was about ChatGPT was the GPT-3, right, was about whatever, a year and a half old, right? So like the underlying technology wasn't 
quote unquote new, right? It was uh, from the moment that it was the UX, the interface, right. people going in that. And that, and of course, if you look back at like the history of Apple, what was Apple famous for like, you know, the iPhone, the touchscreen wasn't new, you know. Right. Well, you know yeah. what? It's so funny because I, I founded iPhone Dev Camps with Raven Zachary and and the and the crew, Chris Messina and all them. And, and you know, I use the iPhone example when I give innovation talks to, to boards and stuff all of them, all the time. Hey, we had apps on phones. Nokia had that. BlackBerry had that. We had all those. It, there's a difference. So quick iPhone complaint. Time Magazine invention of the year. There was no invention. There was nothing new invented there. It was an innovation, right? Sure. Very yeah. simple, not semantics. Took a bunch of stuff that was already invented, put it together in a really innovative way to cover a market. So the funny thing, the irony about what we're doing here at Strangeworks is, you know, I worked in Apple R&D. A lot of us have worked with Apple and for Apple. Uh, we see what Sam is doing at OpenAI and all. And it's like we've kind of – he's been doing it since 2015, since 2018. We've kind of said we're going to do that for quantum. We're going to build whatever abstraction layers are needed. We're going to build whatever software is needed, whatever things to lower the barriers to entry. We're going to try to help lower the cost and the barriers to entry because where I think quantum really takes off in like a crazy way are, are – are, Three distinct points. First, a demonstration of advantage will drive enough interest that people will finally get off their ass and start using it, right? Second, I think that happens in the next 24 months. I'm, I'm very positive on the next 12. Second, and this is really important, is the abstraction layers, the interface, the things that, that we're really focused on here being delivered so people don't need to know physics to debug an app they're running <laughs> and a step up from that to where people don't need to know a whole lot to run an app against their data, right? So that's a second one. I think that'll be another big, big inflection point. The third one will be at the point where a quantum computing platform, probably a software platform, I don't say that because we're software and we don't do hardware, is integrated with something like what OpenAI is doing with access to multiple different modalities of quantum computers. When that happens, okay, then you will see it'll be like the early days of the internet, except take the first, okay, I don't know when the internet hit you guys. For me, it was at Apple in 93, uh, and I was working with Mike Irwin and Sebastian Hassinger and Preston Gregg and everybody on support.apple, info.apple.com, which got millions of visits every 24 hours back then, which is like insane. And a lot of people don't know Apple had owned the 17 net, right? So they owned 17 dot everything. So they were like the first people. Mike was like the first person to invent subleasing domains, all these other things. Really, really innovative times. And I think about that. I think about from 93 to I downloaded the Arc browser this week. You guys seen that? It's amazing. Everyone go download it. I don't know them. I think they have a cool name, the Browser Company of New York. I'm like, it's kind of like a, a 1920s tech company. I don't know. I think it's cool. But they made this really, it's, it's everything I've wanted from the internet. And that's kind of their pitch. They're like, oh, like web pages are great, but how do you organize it? How do you really use stuff? A usability thing. What were browsers? Usability thing, right? Usability is the key to quantum. Strangeworks is focused on the user experience and the usability. I do think this that abstraction layer, and I think that's the whole thing with, with ChatGPT because when it was the, I can actually access this and I being the, the broader I, right? Like anybody can random and even like, you know, I, you know, I have a young daughter and she loves 
us using it to create, create like bedtime stories. She's like, create me this like a dragon that That's shrinks and does. And now we're still on the reading part that I have to read it to her in those kind of cases. Yeah, but, but that's so great. But yeah, and then you said it, quantum being able to. I mean, that's you know we were we were uh, at an event that was talking about the worry of like technology leaving people behind. And one of the things that I've seen is the rise of the you know what you call the low code no code movement. And I'll yep. put some of this as part of it, which is yes, the deep technical building of quantum computers, you have to have deep physics and all that to understand it. But we're seeing this kind of abstraction layer continues to be on top, whether that be ChatGPT or Shopify, which is, do I need to understand how to build e-commerce or do I go just easily put this together and have these pieces that go to accelerate whatever it is I want so to it's do? It's so funny you talked about that because it brings up two really big, very distinct issues that we, uh, or topics that often come up when I'm out around quantum computing. One is about value, is about the value of what you just said. Because if you're a physicist, you understand it and you don't understand what value that has. Okay. <laughs> and, and that made our entry into quantum a little bit, you know, turbulent. You know, there's people like, who are these software guys? You know, what do you know? It's like, well, I mean, I learned how to spell physics in the first six months of the company. And then, you know, like, I mean, you know, you know I wrote quantum computing for babies. You guys have a copy, right? I love that. Um, you know, we, we, we weren't as well received as we would have liked to have been. Bunch of nice people, just different worlds. You know, it's just a cultural thing, right? There's nothing wrong. Like, you know, I'm not saying physicists are assholes. I'm just saying, like, we literally could have just, as an equivalent, dropped ourselves in the middle of Afghanistan or somewhere and been like, hey, so we'd like to start a business. And the same way they'd have been like, we don't understand a word coming out of your mouth would be how the physicists are like, where'd you come from? So so that's one, which is this disconnect that they don't understand. And, and, and the thing is that when you look at that, you think, what is so wonderful about chat GTP? And I do think it's wonderful. It is because... Quantum computing, you know, things that StrangeWorks is doing, things that OpenAI is doing, things that, you know, Microsoft is doing with OpenAI and their partner of ours too and, and other companies, IBM, you know, we have 50 partners in the quantum space. What's really happening is we're approaching an inevitable point of technology and that inevitable point of technology is where we create the last thing we'll ever create and that is a quantum superintelligence, right? Because then... It will create everything for us. You know, it, it's kind of like that matrix, right? Mr. Sis says, as soon as we started thinking for you, it became our society, right? And all those worries and all those things. You know, I have a, a, a wonderful friend who's a, a director, very accomplished. And, you know, I we were in Bend for our team offsite a uh, week before last. And uh, I was like, oh, have you seen Dali? Or you know, hey, like visceral reaction. A week later... A week and a half later, whatever, I talked to her earlier this week, said, my boss is all about this. I want to start looking at this. I want to, like, I think I get it. And so what is the inevitable thing that's leading to? It's an imagination economy. It's an economy completely of creators who don't need to. And if, and if you think that's weird or it won't work or that's not going to happen or we won't have 100% unemployment by 2060, which I totally believe we will, uh, maybe 2050, um, then you haven't been paying attention. What the hell do you think Google does? People are like, oh, they're using ChatTP to write papers. <laughs> so no students ever Googled papers and cut and paste it? I mean, come on. What are you talking about? Like, it's such a ridiculous argument. But we're getting into a where, where, you know, you've got these different dystopian and non-dystopian futures in sci-fi. Gene Roddenberry, I'm certainly not a Trekkie, although I did see a friend of mine, took my wife and I see William Shatner last week when I was here. It was 
off unhinged. It was incredible. They were embarrassed. I had one of the best nights of my life. I was like, what is going to come out of his mouth next? He's like 91. Could not give less Fox. He just doesn't care. He talked about going to space with Bezos and a teenager and the darkness of space and a teenager throwing candy at Jeff Bezos' butthole. He's like, that's what I saw. And then I looked, and this is humanity. I look out the window and it was, and you know how dramatic he is. It was death as far as the eye can. Space is death. And it was so weird, not just what he's saying, but that you don't think of him as William Shatner. You think of him as Captain Kirk. He's like, space is deadly. Stay away from it or whatever. You're like, this is so weird. But that small digression aside, he talked about this. Everybody's talking about it. This is inevitable. Like, what do people do in Star Trek? They go explore the galaxy. They learn how to play violin. They better themselves. They create, they invent things. What do they do it with? They do it with a fabrication machine that they talk to. They do it with, you know, science that's common knowledge, right? Think about what my seven-year-old knows about iPads, the internet, and computers and stuff. Send him back a hundred years. He's president of America. You know what I'm saying? Like, so we got to look at this and say, this is, this transition has been happening since Jack Kilby invented the integrated circuit. We just haven't been paying attention. So now we're like, what? Computers are going to take my job? 1980s. Bank tellers protesting in the streets against ATMs. It's going to put every bank teller out of a job. You been to a bank lately? You talked to a teller? It didn't put them out of a job. It refocused what they're on. Now they're about customer service and loan origination and things like that, right? So I think that we're going to have an opportunity to have the greatest society any of us could have ever imagined, regardless of our political, religious, other beliefs or whatever. And I think that happens at the point where it's like, oh, we're kind of done with a whole bunch of this stuff. What do we do now? We got to start looking inside instead of outside. And I, I think that's something that will, that will happen. I think that the, the, an economy driven by imagination and creativity is coming. And I think Sam uh, Altman and, and the, the team at OpenAI unleashed the, the dike on that and the, the floodgate broke when your daughter can say that to you and my son, who's seven, is, you know, been obviously in first grade learning to read and write and all, is starting to ask me if he can borrow my phone to type stuff in it. And he has crazy ideas and incredible imaginations. So if you put that on perspective, you, you know, people say children are our future. The children could be creating the next great inventions or companies or policies or whatever randomly as far as you see it, but actually very deterministically because of tools like this. Like your daughter could publish a kid's book because you're going to read her one every night. Like to her, think about that. Do, do you think she sees, she'd just be like, oh, we'll just make a book. Like, well, I can't draw. Oh, we'll use the other thing. Which we have. Right? <laughs> right. Exactly. And by the way, how much joy and enjoyment have you gotten out of it? You oh, know? yeah. And, 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 and you know what it's never going to replace? It's never going to replace human conversation like this podcast we're doing now. I mean, not for an extremely long time. And even when, it, when it'll be, it's a different, it's a different brain. There's, there's things it doesn't have. You know, I recommend everybody read Superintelligence, uh, which is an older book. It is a, one of the best books, in my opinion, on this topic. It's so hard to read or listen to because, like, that's a 10 to the 8th of a 12th to the negative 4th of the possibility. And you're just like, oh, okay, whatever. I'm listening to it on an audiobook. That was a mistake because <laughs> I'm, like, trying to, like, imagine my head while I'm driving down the road. <laughs> we can get a wreck. But, um, you know, there's a lot of questions we have to answer about 
agents and, and, and emissaries and how do these things work and what about checks and balances and would a superintelligence be smart enough to contact one of you and say, you know, I don't really like Worley as CEO, but here's what we can do, right? Is there conspiracy? Is there collusion or coercion? Or, you know, there's all of these things and people want to worry about all these things. And here's the thing. People also worried about cars. Remember when people wouldn't buy cars because their horse was awesome. And why would we ever stop using horses? What about planes? What about, I mean, you could name a hundred things. We've lived through this so much. It's ridiculous for us to be acting the way we're acting right now and not embracing it and saying, you know, schools, oh, we're banning it so that people, how are you banning it? It's on their phone. What are you banning? Like, like it's such a ridiculous thing, you know? And, and also you got the other people who are flaming the flag. They're like, oh, look, I wrote this book and did the art. And, you know, and you've got the other people who are like, hey, it took a test at Wharton and it, and it passed it, you know? And it's like, of course it did. It works differently than you do. It's going to do that every time. And by the way, it's here and plenty of people have this these different realms of technology and they're going to continue to do really, really cool stuff with it, whether you like it or not. Like you're not going to stop it, right? We we don't take that genie and put it back in the bottle. Like that ship sailed in the 80s probably, the ATM controversy, if not before, right? So so anyway, that, there's a lot of rambling. But the, the point is, it's like people listening – should do everything they can to play with ChatGTP and Dolly and go play with a stranger platform, play with any quantum thing, play with any AI thing, do whatever you can to realize that, you know, everybody always wants to go, what's the next big thing where I get a job or do this? And the next big thing may be not having the job. Well, we keep wondering where all these people disappeared to in the workforce after the pandemic. Only I fans. Think... <laughs> they disappeared to only fans. Hadn't thought of that. But okay. You want to know why there's no waitresses? <laughs> Only fans. No waiters, maybe? Only fans. Okay. I did a study on this for a presentation. You'd be shocked. Restaurants were like, we're not raising the minimum wage or we're not there. And people were like, you know, I can sell a picture of my toe and make $5,000 tonight. So like, sorry, those toe pictures are flying across the internet. And there went our family-friendly <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh, you didn't mention that. <laughs> no, the kids are on OnlyFans. In fact... I'm going to preview this. Strangeworks has been secretly working on an OnlyFans project, which I hope to also announce at South by. No, no, no. Now you got to tell us some more. I'm not going to say a word. Oh. Um, all right. I'm going to hold you to it. That's a huge tease. But trust me, and I just sat with my co-founder, our lawyer, the other day. And went, so check it out. This is our OnlyFans page. And he went, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> he did what you did. He goes, there goes the company. No. Yeah. I understand. Okay. There's certain things we get, and there's certain things that South by gets. Yes, <laughs> that's all right. We'll be there. We'll run into you. We'll find you. We'll, we'll do another. We'll do a follow up. You there can you go. Absolutely. You guys, about what do you think about our OnlyFans page? Okay. I think it's the first time we've been speechless on the podcast. <laughs> I don't know where to go with this. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> sure. We're going to get away from from OnlyFans and from Quantum for a minute, and we can talk about Austin. Okay. Absolutely. You, this is not your first rodeo. You've nope. been successful with several companies before. You've done really well. Austin has continued to evolve and gone through many phases. We see recently it's turning towards what I'll call deep tech for a minute, whether it's quantum, whether it's AI, whatever. Where are we in terms of that pivot? And what does that mean, at least to you, for Austin? So that pivot is happening worldwide, just to be clear. And I, I do a whole presentation on this, and I'm so happy it's happening because for the last 20 years, we've had this uh, 
proliferation of venture investors who aren't venture investors. They're growth investors or whatever, not investors or whatever. You know, everybody's got money that they can invest in you, which is weird because I was under the impression the economy is crashing in front of my eyes, but you know, whatever. Um, I'm going to keep saving my pennies. <laughs> but um, they invested in a Facebook. They invested in a Snapchat. They invested and they made money and everything became, what can we do in social media? And then came the debates about it being bad and all this. And I mean, it is, right? And now we're like, I mean, like my wife doesn't really use it. Nobody I know, like it's kind of ran its course. We in the last few years have moved from investing in Facebooks and Instagrams to investing in SpaceXs and OpenAIs and Strangeworks. And so this is a trend that I think if you look back on time, you see it go from enterprise to consumer, enterprise to consumer. I think this is that trend and I think the amount of cash flowing through it just extended it. I th it used to be like a 10-year cycle. Right now, this is about a more 20-year cycle. Um, I, I think it just the, the money coming to it just extended it uh, artificially, um, kind of like the Fed buying treasuries or equities. And so you come into it and you say, is that change happening? Yes. Is the greatest change I could have ever hoped for? I feel like now my tech career begins. You know, what does that mean for Austin? It's great for Austin. Because our startup scene has kind of sucked in a lot of ways, and I'll explain why. You guys know, if we're honest with ourselves and objective, you guys have been pitched a hundred times on people who are doing, I'm the doing this for the thing that looks just like the other company that you saw that raised a billion dollars or whatever, right? We're fast followers is what we've been for a long time. Not in every area, not in everything. I'm saying if you went outside of Austin, you ask other people, this is what they would say. Now... You remember back in the PowerPC days, Motorola and Apple doing stuff. You remember that we we're part of Silicon Alley. You know, you got you know uh, all the Silicon Labs and the Intel. Now the part of our community, and we've been system management fakes focused and telecom focused. All that. Now all of a sudden, that kind of where there's science and math involved is now more acceptable to pitch, right, to a, a larger group of investors and. The dynamics of change in investment where it's not like, oh, why don't you move your Cal come to California from Austin and whatever, right? Like people are happy to invest all over global now, right? So all of that combining, what it means for Austin is um, danger <laughs> because in the last year, there have been a ton of people who have moved here from all over the world and from other parts of Texas. We only came here two years ago. And I, and I, I interface with people of every walk of life, of every financial staff, of everything. And I get to hear, like, I can't believe this person moved here and they think they're a billionaire and they're nearly not and this and that and blah, blah, or I did this or I did that. And we've, we've got a division because where we had an Austin, for better or worse, we now have a Austin and Austin, LA and Austin, San Francisco and Austin, New York and Austin, Chicago and Austin. And they're these, like, people are trying to make their name, the city they think is hot, and we're fracturing the community into all these thiefdoms, and it's a horrible thing. You know, it's driven by ego. It's why I haven't done any, you know, I stopped doing bar camp in 2000-something. <laughs> I stopped doing events. I stopped doing all that. And part of the reason was because it's like, you know, what what's, what's the purpose? And so the reason I say it's dangerous to us is because, one, our – the affordability of housing in Austin has already just, I mean, it was already not heading in the right direction. Tech didn't help. Okay. Uh, two, we don't have the infrastructure. Sort the growth, right? We, we, we're not planning properly. 
I, I don't think the train we built was the right decision. I don't think the highway projects are any the right decision. I'm actually in favor of burying the highway. I, mean, I saw that the first time. I thought it was great that uh, you guys, since you, they want to take I-35, I don't know if you've seen this, and put the highway underground and make a big park. It like, sounds awesome. So so it, it's dangerous because you have new people, you have a shift, you have people who have been here have been like, I've been here for 30 years. I am the tech scene. And you have people coming in going like, I did all these big things. I am the new tech scene, right? You have an all, there's a lot of disturbance in, in the force. Benefits to Austin because it's also super beneficial. We get people who are like, that's not a business, which is great. We could use a little, we could use a little of that stern, stern direct feedback um, on a number of things. We get the benefit of new money moving in. Jim Breyer, wonderful guy, moved here, right? Joe Lonsdale moved here. Tons of people moved here. I mean, yeah, Elon's here and Samsung's building a chip and all this other stuff. Irrelevant. What's relevant is that entrepreneurs in a very early stage have people with a lot of experience who are pretty friendly and available to help guide or start or invest in a business. And I think that changes the the financial outcome. So I mean it's the place to be for sure, but we could we could screw it up pretty bad pretty fast if we if we don't, you know, if we're too competitive and not collaborative enough. And I mean, we talk to literally every one of our competitors once a month. I was with two of them in Miami last week. I was within six or seven of them a week before that, uh, two weeks before that in in, LA, in uh, uh, Las Vegas. Um, we need for Austin to survive. It needs to be community focused, collaboratively driven with a, a, a cause, with a purpose. And that would be to build an ecosystem that supports an entrepreneur, whether they're me and I've already had all the success or you or some kid at UT or ACC or whatever that has an idea so that everybody can can get a chance. I used to mentor people on December last year. I stopped that because I, I couldn't, but I hope that, that, that that's where we get. We always ask ourselves, our question the same as what's next, Austin? I don't know if we could put it any more eloquently than you just did. Worley, this has been an amazing time. I'm sure we could have spent another two hours talking about this. It was a whole lot of fun, but thank you so much for being on the Austin Next podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, and I'll be looking for you guys in the audience at South By. Absolutely. We'll be there. Thanks so much. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.